you know, where churches go corporate, let's just call it corporate. In other words, there's a big package, a nice building, you know, a, a little, so many minutes timed out worship package, quote unquote worship, uh, you know, uh, a little motivational message, inspirational message, and then you all go home. Well, what's that? That's not kingdom life. That's not church. That's not koinonia. That's not biblical Christianity. And there's no power of the spirit. No wonder people walk away from that. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of The Vast Podcast. Jake here with my co-host, David Campbell. David, how are you doing today? I'm uh, about as good as any one of my advanced age can. Any one of your what? Advanced age. <laughs> how old are you? Like 45? I don't. I don't uh, that's confidential information. <laughs> I've, I just turned 70. Happy birthday. Happy 70th birthday to our esteemed colleague, everybody's favorite person, Dr. David Campbell. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, the subject of Pentecost baptism with the Holy Spirit or in the Holy Spirit um, and how those relate to uh, our own salvation experience you know, matters of second blessing and things like that, um, which is all a part of Pentecostalism and uh, the kingdom of God. So David, let's, uh, let's begin here. Why don't you share with us some of your thoughts around the topic of what is the baptism with the spirit? How should we think about it? Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a topic on which there's a massive amount of confusion uh, as far as biblical interpretation is concerned. Uh, and it's a question of how do we relate what the Bible says to what our experience actually is. And um, so historically, uh, when the early Pentecostals, the, the revival at Azusa Street right there down the road from where you live, um, broke out, and people began speaking in tongues. And it wasn't the first time in church history that that had happened, but it's the beginning of the modern Pentecostal slash charismatic revival. There's no question about it. And uh, for for those people, they had been, uh, they were, uh, a lot of them had been taught doctrine in the holiness movement. And the holiness movement believed in a second blessing, which they equated with a kind of a experience of sanctification or... Mm you know, some kind of power encounter. Uh, but in within the holiness movement, it was completely unrelated to the gifts of the Spirit. And what happened with, uh, with the early Pentecostals was they were a group of people who uh, already believed that, you know, they needed an encounter with the Holy Spirit, but they attached to it the idea of speaking in tongues because they read their Bible and they thought, well, why aren't we experiencing that? And so then God met them. And, uh, you know, that, that's uh, 120 odd years ago now. And so naturally, because all of them were already Christians and then subsequently had this experience, they compartmentalized the second experience and called it the baptism in the spirit. So the idea being that they were all people who were genuinely saved. They knew they were saved. They also knew they lacked power dimension in the Christian life they read about in the Bible. 
Now God met them with this supernatural encounter. So they defined it out of their experiential encounter as the bap- this is the baptism in the spirit and the outward sign that you had it was speaking in tongues. So all of that is quite understandable. It, they were only analyzing uh, their own experience. Um, but the problem is that when you look at the biblical text, uh, to me, it's quite clear that the baptism in the spirit is actually a reference to conversion and that there's no question that if you're a Christian, you have received the Holy Spirit. And then when you look at the book of Acts, it seems to indicate that the evidence is not speaking in tongues, but is actually power to bear witness to Christ. And the idea of bearing witness to Christ is not does not refer to evangelism. It refers to a lifelong witness to the Christian faith uh, in, in all your words and deeds. So it's much broader than just giving a tract out. So, uh, so then, as the years passed, uh, you know, people who did not have this experience and speaking in tongues, there, there grew to be a division between the people who had it and believed that, well, this was really a sign that you had the Spirit, and people on the other side that were really offended by that and, and felt they were being labeled second-class Christians and who read their Bible uh, and many of them, the early Pentecostals, were not noted for being good Bible teachers. The people that were good Bible teachers read their Bible and said, well, no, the, this Jesus, you know, saying, um, I, you know, that I'm going back to say in this city, I'm going to baptize you in the spirit. Uh, and the other references, you know, John came baptizing in water, but one will come after mm-hmm. me. John said he will baptize in the spirit, that this baptism in the spirit is the giving of the Spirit, is the bestowing of the Spirit. There's nowhere in the Bible that suggests it's a, a distinct second experience. So um, when I was a young Christian, which is quite a long time ago, um, there was a massive uh, division in the body of Christ over this issue. And, you know, not a lot of charity between the two sides. Now, I think that over the years, that has... Um, dissipated a lot, thankfully, um, so that, uh, you know, people who are charismatic and who move in the gifts of the Spirit um, don't think of themselves as superior, and people that are outside that realm have come to accept that the gifts of the Spirit uh, are for today. Most of them have. Um, unless your name is John MacArthur. Unless your name is Arthur. Uh, and the reason for that is that study your Bible, there's absolutely not a single verse in the Bible that gives any justification uh, for a doctrine that the gifts of the Spirit were only for the first early period of the church life. Right. Um, and, and, and they're not any longer to be exercised. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's just, uh, you know, e- even very conservative evangelical Bible teachers um, uh, unless they have an absolute bee in their bonnet, like John MacArthur, have admitted long since that that's not a biblical doctrine. So practically speaking, there's a lot more peace and a lot less division about this. But as a Bible teacher, I look at it and I, I see, um, you know, I think it's really important that we get this right. And I, I, I feel there's some very, there's some, I have some very significant reasons for believing this. 
who if if I believe as I do that the baptism of the Spirit refers to a person coming to Christ, um, then my charismatic friends get horrified and they say to me, "Well, you're denying my encounter with the Holy Spirit." Which right. I personally had a dynamic power encounter with the Holy Spirit um, a year or so after I really came to the Lord, which changed right. life. And to be clear, David, you yourself would you wouldn't mind the identifier of charismatic for your yeah. you as well. As as long as people don't identify as pe- long as people don't define charismatic as being some you know, sure poopy nut yeah. or whatever. It's a bit like it's a bit like me with Pentecostal. I've talked about this on the podcast before, how I, it's not the, you know, the identifier that I uh, gravitate towards the most strongly, but purely because of, you know, it just can mean so many different things to many different people. Yeah, you always let, let, find these things. Let, let's get uh, back to the baptism piece. First of all, so far I've heard you say baptism in the Spirit, baptism of the Spirit. I mentioned baptism with the Spirit. I think the ESV uses with. Uh, I've heard people talk about like there's there's nuance between those you know uh, prepositions is no. is that true or is that just reading into something? No, that's that's, that's that's reading into into it. it yeah. the a baptism in the spirit. It's e e n is the Greek preposition. It could mm-hmm. be translated by or it could be translated in. Um, and uh, some of the Pentecostals tried to make a distinction, saying one of the terms referred to conversion and one of the terms referred to this second experience, but there's absolutely no justification for, um, you know, creating a distinction between the two. Right. Well, here in Acts one in, uh, in my Bible, it says, uh, quoting Jesus, you, you will, uh, be baptized with the Holy spirit, but there's a footnote that says in, so, um, it seems, sounds like, but that's the terminology. The question: right. What does that refer to? Exactly. And, so let's talk about that because you mentioned the secondary experience, right? Post salvation. Well, and the base to the Pentecostals. First of all, is that a distinct Pentecostal doctrine? Do all Pentecostals believe that baptism with the Spirit is a secondary experience to salvation? Yes, that's fundamental to Pentecostal doctrine. Okay. So by Pentecostal. I mean assemblies of God and related uh, movements around the world. That's mm-hmm. what I mean by Pentecostal. There's a distinction between Pentecostal and charismatic. Uh, Pentecostals are organized uh, around the assemblies of God and organizations that are related to that, and uh, they, you know, they they would have that as a strong point of doctrine. Mm-hmm. They're almost universally, sadly, dispensationalists as well, which doesn't make sense because if you really understand dispensationalism, it, it teaches against the gifts of the Spirit. But so, uh, and those of us who are charismatic, you can be charismatic and be in any movement. You can be in a, you know, uh, a non denominational movement like you're in, and a lot I have background in. Uh, you could even be charismatic and be in the Southern Baptist Convention, as far as that goes. Um, But to be Pentecostal, you're part of an official Pentecostal capital P denomination. I see. Anyway, um, so if I look at my own experience and someone says to me, well, David, you know, you were saved 
you receive the Spirit, because if you don't have the Spirit, Romans 8 says you're not a Christian. Uh, but you have to admit that a year later, you had a power encounter with the Holy Spirit to change your life. How do you explain mm -hmm. that? And so how I explain it is that for almost 2,000 years, most of the church has taught that the gifts of the Spirit ceased in the apostolic age in the first century. Mm -hmm. So if, if that is, uh, and, and that is accurate, I mean, what is accurate is that the church has taught that. And Interesting. So, Despite so much uh, evidence to the contrary from some of the early church fathers who, as I understand it, wrote extensively on very powerful supernatural things happening. But, but I guess that didn't necessarily mean that they believed that that was because of the continuation of the gifts. I mean, even is it Charles Spurgeon famously was a cessationist and yet regularly experienced very uh, uh, specific words of knowledge about people in his congregation. Right. And I just think that people, you know, even a great Bible teacher like Spurgeon, um, he was probably scandalized at the thought of speaking in tongues, for one thing. Uh, but he really had no frame of reference because um, you think about it. Uh, if if you uh, are heir to a movement like Spurgeon was, the Anabaptist movement that had existed for several hundred years and there was no little or no manifestation of the supernatural or the gifts of the spirit, then, you know, on, the, on occasions when a word of knowledge or something happened, you wouldn't really be able to pinpoint or categorize doctrinally. And it would be interesting, you know, to sit with Spurgeon in the presence of the Lord and discuss that, or he did or didn't process it. But I mean, I've sat with people that were cessationists and said, well, you know, you, you don't believe we can hear from God, but really you're setting up a, you know, a straw man. You're setting up a, uh, extreme argument, uh, where people claim to hear voices and you're saying, well, I don't believe in that, you know, but, but I'm redefining hearing from God as reading my Bible one night and a verse jumps out of me. That's directly applicable to a situation I'm facing at the moment. That to me is hearing from God. And we all believe in that. So it's just a question of definition. And I think if we restore definition to this whole issue of baptism in the spirit, we can bring a lot more light um, to it. And so going back to, um, yeah, my own, if someone was interrogating me, I would say, well, uh, I didn't receive um, that power encounter with the Holy Spirit because Nobody taught me that it was available. You know, the body of Christ taught me it wasn't available. And what happens when you teach against the work of the Spirit? The Spirit is grieved and he withdraws. The Bible teaches that. So the Holy Spirit withdraws and is offended by our, uh, you know, lack of willingness to receive who he is or certain aspects of who he is. And so the church falls into an area of rebellion against God. And millions of people come to Christ, but because the church is teaching against that, they don't enter into the inheritance that biblically God has for them. Um, and you could say the same thing about other doctrines, even in the Middle Ages, where the medieval Catholic Church was very powerful and tried to extinguish the idea of 
by faith that had been taught, you know, in the early centuries of the church, people still came to Christ, but they were robbed of a clear understanding of what they had in Christ until the Reformation came along. And it's the same thing with the restoration of the gifts of the Spirit. So, um, so then I look at it and I ask the question, well, if Pentecost is supposed to be normative, Acts chapter 2, if that's supposed to be normative, that's the birth of the church, if that's supposed to be normative for the Christian life, then why would I have to wait to receive a second experience? If the church has grieved the Spirit, and as a result of which people have had to go outside the established borders of churchianity to obtain a second experience at a later point in their life, the solution is not to establish that second experience and say, you can't have the Holy Spirit in all of its fullness when you're saved. That's the error. That's the problem that started this whole mess up. The solution is to say, hey, we've now encountered the power of the Holy Spirit five or 10 or 15 or 20 years down the line after we became Christians. It's wonderful, but I don't want the next person I lead to the Lord to have to wait five, 10 or 20 years why can't they have it when they're saved? And so what I feel is that we need to restore um, our understanding of what happens in salvation. And, and to me, Acts says, repent and believe, uh, be baptized, and you will receive the Spirit. So in, in the process of salvation, there's three things involved, one of which is repentance, uh, and, and, and putting our faith in Christ, a second of which is receiving the Holy Spirit, and a third of which is water baptism. And they're all supposed to happen. So if I, if I So ideally, what the church should aim at is getting the whole package when a person is first saved. Now, if that doesn't happen for whatever, and what I mean by the whole package is not all three of those things, and is and and you know we might have to rethink how we practice water baptism as well a little bit. And why should people wait six months or a year to be baptized? But uh, and but the at, on the day of Pentecost, um, what actually happened was that those 120 believers began to uh, you know they had a, a supernatural gift given to them of speaking in known foreign languages, which were then understood by all of the, um, you know, the, the Jews who had come from all the different nations into which they, they were scattered and spoke different languages. They were, they were understood. And, but what they were doing was proclaiming the praises of God. And the Jewish uh, rabbis taught that when the Messiah came, the spirit of prophecy would be restored. And so actually they were prophesying. They were speaking in tongues, but they were also prophesying, declaring the great things of God. And so what that says to me is that when we receive the spirit, it isn't just, let's not just limit it like the Pentecostals do to speaking in tongues. Let's open up the whole range of the supernatural. I mean, all the gifts of the spirit that are given in Scripture, that are listed in Scripture, there's several different lists of them. 
Uh, and the ones that are particularly supernatural, for instance, the, the nine in, listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which includes uh, prophecy and tongues and interpretation and gifts of healing and uh, distinguishing between spirits and uh, miracles and faith and so on. Um, let's believe God that when a person is saved, there's a doorway they go through. He says, that's what happened to me. When I had this extraordinary encounter with God, which I wasn't even looking for because I was offended by the charismatic people that I knew because I felt they were trying to say they had something better to me and I was a second-class Christian. They weren't saying that at all, but they were just trying to share what God had done in their life. And God dragged me, kicking and screaming, I mean, through a, a lot of pride and I had to be delivered of and humble myself and so on. And then I had this extraordinary encounter with the Holy Spirit, and I did begin to speak in tongues. That's absolutely true. But that wasn't all that happened to me. I started knowing things that were going to happen before they happened. And I didn't even have a frame of reference for that until I understood it was somewhere in the realm of the prophetic and word of knowledge. And uh, then, you know, when I began to pray for people, things began to happen. And it was like I had been taken into a whole different world. You know, like going into Narnia. Everybody's read Narnia. Uh, you know, you go through that wardrobe into a different world. And, and that was the experience that I had. And I stayed in that world ever since. Not that I'm, you know, some kind of ex claiming angelic experiences all the time. It's just that it is a different world. It's the world of the supernatural. And I feel that why should we preach to people a dis if, if you preach to people a distinct second experience, then what you're really saying is you can't have all of that when you're saved. You have to wait for it. And the inevitable thing happens, and it happened in, in the early days of Pentecostalism, and it still happens, is that when you tell someone you can't have it now, but you can have it later, is you have to earn what's going to happen later. You know, it's not by grace anymore. It's related to holiness or God is not. And countless numbers of people have been fallen into despair because, you know, they fasted and prayed and they've given up all their bad habits and they've done this and they've done that and they're striving and they're still told, well, there's some sin in your life that you, you haven't been given the baptism, you know, and then it's legalism. Mm -hmm. And that's so, in Pentecostal circles. Still, let's let's. And it, let's talk more about David. Let's let's talk more about the baptism thing because I I think people really want to understand, biblically speaking, what what's laid out. So we have Acts two, we have Acts eight in Samaria, we have Acts ten in Cornelius's household, and we have Acts nineteen with Paul in Ephesus. The first three being uh, Luke's way of laying out how the great commission is being fulfilled, that the gospel is being preached in Jerusalem and all Judea, in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, which Cornelius and his household being Gentiles signifies that. Acts 19 in Ephesus is, I guess, a further extension of that as well. <clears throat> what happened in Acts chapter 2? You have those 120 believers in the upper room who were believers in the crucified and resurrected Christ, who had been taught by Jesus about the kingdom of God. So 
they were already saved and yet they have a secondary experience. Right. Why is that not normative? What, like, why can't I look at that and say, okay, clearly here is a secondary experience. They were already saved and then they received the Holy Spirit. And that, let's start with Acts 2 and then let's get to 8, 10, and 19. That's a classic Pentecostal argument. Exactly what you said. Um, look, the, the answer to that is that the Holy Spirit, you're, you're dealing with a once in all of history event. Jesus the, said he's going to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can't come until Jesus is, ascends to the right hand of the Father. And so you have these, uh, not only the 12 disciples, but this group of 120 who are the you know, residue of all of Jesus' ministry. And uh, they had, they were definitely in relationship with Christ. They loved the Lord. There's no question about that. But the Holy Spirit had not yet come. The Holy Spirit was only present in the same way he had been in Old Testament days, which was sporadic uh, anointings upon individuals for a particular task, like Elijah Elijah, or like the the 12 or the 72 when Jesus sent them out. Or even before them, uh, John the Baptist, right. uh, Simeon, uh, mm-hmm. what's the lady in, uh, in the temple? It, Anna. Yeah. Anna. So there's, there, there's the Holy Spirit there. What, what about, just as a parenthesis to this, when Jesus breathes onto the disciples after his resurrection and says, receive the Holy Spirit, what's going on there? Well, that is, that is a prophetic indicator uh is that luke or john in john at the end of that's john yeah uh, that is a prophetic sign that jesus is performing indicating the imminence of something that's mm. happened now you know the disciples following that did fail to understand what was happening in the in the resurrection they were you know behind locked doors they were terrified of the jews and all the rest of it um they didn't have the holy spirit they, they clearly did have the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. So mm-hmm. in John's gospel, Jesus is saying, receive the Spirit. It's something in Greek that's called proleptic, which is a long word that means, complicated word that means, it's a prophetic sign this is about to happen. Mm-hmm. It's not that it's actually happening in the moment. If it had actually happened in the moment, you would have had Acts 2 in right. John chapter yeah. Uh, 21 you would have had the evidence of being filled with the holy spirit of being baptized with or in the holy spirit and let's that's good so let's put the parentheses closed there because i want to come back to should we expect some kind of evidence when when we are baptized in the holy spirit and we'll come back to that so uh going back to acts 2 the disciples believe they love the lord they're growing in their understanding of of the nature of the kingdom and then Pentecost happens, and they are baptized with the Holy Spirit. But that is not a normative thing for the rest of Christianity because this is the first time the Holy Spirit is coming upon the church. And now Peter is going to stand up and say, this is a fulfillment of so much of what the Old Testament prophets talked about. And now you must repent of your sin, baptize with water, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, who is for everybody, everyone whom the Lord calls. Yes, no one can receive the Holy Spirit before Pentecost. Mm -hmm. But after Pentecost, anyone can receive the Holy Spirit when they put their trust in Christ. So that group of 120, they crossed 
a generational line. They were people who lived in both eras of history, pre-Pentecost and post-Pentecost. They're the only people that did that, that, that will ever do that. Uh, and so they entered, they didn't receive the, the empowering of the whole, you, I mean, the, the Holy Spirit had come upon them for particular anointings uh, during the earthly ministry of Jesus, but they didn't receive the indwelling Holy Spirit and his power until the day of Pentecost because nobody could. But after that, anyone who repented and believed would receive the same as the disciples did on the day of Pentecost. That's my argument, biblically. Peter says, okay, here we are. Now, any one of you, if you repent and put your trust in Christ, can have this same encounter with the Holy Spirit. And he didn't say, um, you can uh, get saved now, but you can't have this experience uh, until later because all these, you know, uh, I mean, it was happening bef before their eyes. Uh, and he, he wasn't saying, okay, God has done this to us. We knew Jesus. Now he's blessing us because we're super spiritual and we're, uh, you know, prophesying and have this gift of speaking in foreign languages. And, uh, you know, you can get saved, but you can't have this manifestation that we're having until a later date. He didn't say that. He said the absolute opposite. He said, if you believe, you can have the Holy Spirit the same way we have the Holy Spirit. So that becomes normative for every person from that moment forward until the Lord returns. That if you repent and put your trust in Christ, you will receive the Holy Spirit. And so that's my uh, argument and my plea that uh, when we um, see people come to Christ, uh, let's believe it possible or let's believe that in that moment they have entered into a whole new world. Now, I mean, every evangelical Bible teacher, including John MacArthur, would believe that at the moment of conversion, you are saved and you receive the Holy Spirit. And in one sense, you've entered into a new life. Absolutely. We would all agree on that. But what I'm saying is that is a supernatural life. And there, the supernatural manifestation of the power of God is part of our inheritance as, as new Christians, as new believers. And uh, that's what we want to trust God for. Now, I mean, if we go around churches and we discover that there are people who have never really had a power encounter with the Holy Spirit, um, then what do we do? Well, we do what someone did for me, lay hands on them. You know, let's, but what we're doing is we're not establishing a principle that you can't have it when you get saved, you got, you have to wait until later date. What we're doing is saying, this is out of order. You know, it hasn't, it hasn't come down right. So like when the Samaritans, uh, yep. heard, so now we're in Acts chapter eight. Um, something was out of order. Philip was a great evangelist. He, he gets a very positive write up. Not anything negative is said. Nothing negative is said about him in the book of Acts. His ministry is totally in order. And yet, uh, something 
wasn't right to the extent that the apostles had to come rushing down to put it right. Because what had happened was that people had responded to the gospel message, but had not received the empowering that they everyone else had received at Pentecost. So the apostles rushed down, laid hands on them to make sure that they entered into that because they didn't want them to be robbed of that experience. And, um, and so I feel that let's just, uh, you know, when, when I, I'll say to people, look, I believe the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a reference to conversion. And then half the time, my charismatic friends will say, oh, that's false teaching. You're destroying the whole inheritance of the charismatic movement. I say, no, I'm not. I'm trying to cause, allow people or promote a way that people can enter in and don't have to wait the way that the rest of us have to wait. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because when you become a Christian, you enter into supernatural warfare. You've got a target painted on you. Every new convert is a target of the enemy. And the enemy operates in supernatural power. We know that. Mm -hmm. So we need all the power we can get to fight back against him. Mm -hmm. And I think that we should lead people. Why, why do you think the Holy Spirit has chosen or seems to have chosen the activity of laying on of hands for the impartation of the Holy Spirit? And does it have to be that way? Because now I think of Acts 10, where Peter's preaching the gospel to Cornelius and his household, and the Spirit falls on them. I, from what I see there, Peter doesn't lay a finger on them, and yet the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And then, contrary to the Samaritan experience, they receive the Spirit, and then Peter baptizes them with water, whereas in Samaria, it's the other way around. So let's talk more about, about that. Why did... Uh, and, and maybe these are questions we can't have the answer to, but why did the apostles have to go to Samaria to lay hands on them for them to receive the Spirit? Um, and why did God do it the opposite way in Acts 10 with Cornelius? Well, I, I think uh, maybe just to, to demonstrate to us that there's not a formula, because mm -hmm. God will not be bound by formulas. So what we have is in some cases the laying on of hands, in other cases spontaneous following the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't need uh, us to lay hands on someone, but the laying on of hands is a biblical doctrine. You know, he, Hebrews 6, in fact, defines it as elementary, one of the sort of root mm -hmm. doctrines, and you, you see it in the Old Testament. And it, the, the significance, I think, of the laying on of hands is it's, um, you know, we, we are, uh, it's symbolic of God touching us is really what it is. Mm. And it's not a magical thing. Um, it's like the anointing of oil. It's, it carries a symbolism. But, um, you know, we're not, we, we're a people who believe in the resurrection of the body, not the immortality of the soul. So we're a physical people. So that element of touch is important biblically. Um, so that's why I, I think, you know, the laying on of hands is, is something that we do when we pray for people for healing. If we're just, mm -hmm. you know, if, if, if we're just at sitting uh, after church, talking to a friend who's discouraged, we'll lay a hand on their shoulder and uh, instinctively and just, can I pray for you? It's like giving somebody a hug. Um, but no, I mean, God is not bound by formulas. The Holy Spirit is, is I mean, it, it's the same thing when there was an outpouring of the Spirit in Toronto about 25 years ago, which we were quite involved in. And, you know, you, you could 
you could approach a person just to say hello to them, or you could approach a person who is expecting you to pray for them, and before you ever got to the, the person, they'd be collapsed on the floor under the power of God. You didn't have to even touch them necessarily. And if you did touch them, you know, you certainly didn't push them. You just did it very, very lightly. Um, so I don't think God needs that at all. I think the Holy Spirit is very creative. He is Lord. He can come whatever way he wants um, to, that, to, to, to answer that question. Now, I could imagine a cessationist saying that Acts 8, you know, the apostles had to come to lay hands on the Samaritans in order for them to be baptized in the Spirit. I can imagine them looking, at, pointing at that and saying, see, the, only the apostles could do it. This, this kind of activity died with the apostolic age. Well, the apostles really were only the elders of the first church. There was only one church. They were the leaders of the church. And... Uh, they were the ones charged with that resp responsibility of keeping an order of doctrine and of right practice. So I I don't see how uh, you can, you know, uh, extrapolate from that the idea that only the apostles could could do it. Uh, or if that were the case, then. Uh, I mean, your example of Peter, uh, yes, he was an apostle, but he didn't lay hands. So that was different again. The Holy Spirit just fell. And uh, what about with Timothy and the elders laying hands on him? Is that well, a I, parallel? That's thing? a different uh, category because they were laying hands on him as a commissioning um, for uh Pastoral ministry for for ministry, which I think is is another. Um, uh, I'm just uh, I don't know what uh, see in Acts 13, where Paul is sent out, um, they fasted, prayed, and laid their hands on them. Now, who laid their hands on Paul? Uh, well, it wasn't any of the apostles. That's interesting, isn't it? You see, so. Uh, that also wouldn't have been for the re for the receiving of the spirit, although it is Ananias who is sent to pray for Paul, and yep. he himself is not an apostle, and that certainly seems to be part of Paul's salvific experience. Yep. yep. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, Paul had a supernatural encounter when he was knocked off his donkey, and then. He had a healing through the laying on of hands when Ananias came to him. Uh, I think what that shows us is the apostles don't have to be present for things to happen. Uh, and no apostle was present either when Paul was knocked off his donkey or when he had his vision restored. So I don't think that there's any weight to that argument of, you know, only the apostles could do this, that or the next thing. Uh, no, I just asked the question to play devil's advocate. It seems obvious to me that, that that's what you're saying is true, um, if only for the reason that the the New Testament speaks of the church and all of the activity of the church being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So we, the church wouldn't exist without the baptism with the Spirit, without the empowering of the Spirit. The kingdom of God could not expand apart from the moving of the Spirit through his people. Um and so, but, you know, it's always good to just kind of... Well, the doctrine of cessationism, which is that the gifts have ceased, 
applies to all of the gifts, uh, healing, miracles, you name it. Um, and so I think we would all agree that 1 Corinthians 12 teaches uh, that healing was going on, not through the apostles at all, but just through the ordinary members of the church. So that completely disconnects the miraculous in the apostolic age from the apostles. It was just going on everywhere. The, the, the doctrine of cessationism, at the, where it connects the apostles in, is it says, well, the apostles wrote scripture, and when the, the canon of the New Testament was fixed, then we didn't need these miracles anymore. That's actually what it teaches, which is ludicrous, because there's no reason why the church needed miracles the day after the last books in the New Testament were written, mm-hmm. then, then the day before the last book in the New Testament were written. And, and of course, we know that the apostles didn't write all the books in the New Testament anyway. So mm-hmm. uh, there's no... Uh, mm, yeah. <laughs> in, in, my, in my book, in my little no diving book, I address the issue of cessationism and what it is and, and why it is biblically ridiculous notion to hold um but uh that's that's the what that deals with the wider like john MacArthur is not just you know he obviously got to be in his bonnet about speaking in tongues but i mean it applies to the whole realm of the supernatural and i think why would what was the meaning of pentecost then got got surely that is an example surely that's a foundation uh surely god allowed that to happen to be a model for what his church is supposed to be and uh, and so uh, I don't get hung up about speaking in tongues. I believe speaking in tongues is very common in the in the New Testament church. I don't think you can prove from the New Testament that every Christian spoke in tongues. I, I think that there's a high value placed on it, uh, including by the Apostle Paul. It was obviously very common whether or not it was normative and everyone spoke in tongues, we, we just can't tell. And where we can't tell, we don't m- want to make a doctrine out of it. Mm-hmm. But I think the important, and I've known some very, very godly, spirit-filled people that didn't speak in tongues. We all know people like that. But what I want to say is, look, let's broaden it out to be the Holy Spirit does mean to bring us into the realm of the supernatural. And whatever manifestations of the gifts of the Spirit you receive, then there should be some manifestations. That's the implication of 1 Corinthians 12, that each is given. Some supernatural manifestations? Like, could it be possible that I got a Romans 12 manifestation of leadership and not a 1 Corinthians 12 manifestation of prophecy or gifts of healings? Or should we say, like, no? I would say both. And the reason I say that is because 1 Corinthians 12 says very clearly, and that's in specific reference to the nine manifest gifts that he's listed there, supernatural gifts, uh, mm-hmm. that to each is given. So the, mm-hmm. the statement there is that everybody has at least one of these. If you want to get down to basics and nitty gritty, everyone should have at least one, if not more, of these gifts operating, of the nine gifts. And then outside of that, there are gifts of leadership and serving and so on uh, that have more to do with uh, our fundamental, you know, uh, the, the, the fundamental direction that God has given us in life rather than a, an instantaneous 
supernatural manifestation. Because there's a big difference between someone who's called to be a leader in the body of Christ and someone who is prophesying. They're in two different categories, and that's where you have to distinguish between them. Not everybody is called to be an apostle, for instance. Paul says that at the end of 1 Corinthians 12. He talks, he switches from and intermingles this manifestation gifts and the leadership gifts, and he says, well, clearly, not everybody is called to be an apostle, but uh, um, and 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 not everyone manifests every not everyone speaks in tongues in terms of uh, this gift of tongues with interpretation because there's a difference between and speaking in tongues. You can speak like Paul did in private, um, but the gift of tongues is when you stand up and speak in tongues in a public service. Everybody clearly hears what you're saying, and that requires interpretation. Mm -hmm. When when Paul says to each is given the manifestation for the common good, does that necessarily negate the fact that the nine gifts he's listed there are representative and not uh, exhaustive? Could it not be possible that he's saying to each is given a manifestation for the common good and that that could include more beyond the nine gifts? Well, I think that the answer to that would be if you make a list of those nine gifts of the Spirit and then translate them over into the book of Acts, which I, uh, what you find is that they all occur in the book of Acts uh, and often in the context of evangelism, which is interesting. We think the gifts of this, the nine gifts of the Spirit at 1 Corinthians 12 are for worship services. Why do we think that? because Paul's addressing a situation where they were used in a disorderly manner in in the worship service and had to be corrected. But if you go over into the book of Acts, you'll see, you know, speaking in tongues, interpretation, healing, miracles, uh, word of knowledge, all those things are happening in the book of Acts. And which, which which shows us, I think, that the gifts, those supernatural manifestation gifts of the Holy Spirit are not just for church and Sunday morning. Therefore, us as we witness the people and are out there in our jobs and out in the world and whatever, uh, and I've had uh, prophetic gifts and words of knowledge and so on and, and, and prayed for healing, or people who are not even safe that I'm sitting, oh, talking to in a coffee shop or something like that. And I think that's part of the thing where, you know, you, you think after 120 years of this restoration of the gifts of the Spirit that we would have better teaching on some of these things. And why do we think that speaking in tongues, you know, is the only really thing that matters with, as far as the Holy Spirit is concerned? Some people believe that. Why do we think that, and then if you don't speak in tongues, you're nothing. Why do we think that it's only for Sunday morning? Why can we not read the book of Acts and see all these things were being manifest, you know, in evangelism, for instance, a lot of a lot of them were, um, and so I just think sometimes we need to take a step back and and say, well, you know, is what we've been taught really true? And I I think that's not a bad thing to do. Um, no, it's a great thing to do. It might keep people from deconstructing. <laughs> well, exactly. And I I do, Jake, I honestly I believe, and I was talking to somebody the other day about this, that the reason that we have people 
deconstructing, whatever that means. We used to call it backsliding. Um, I think backsliding but, is a much better term. Deconstructing has is, is been co-opted from de- deconstructing postmodern. Reduces walking or spitting in the face of Jesus Christ, reduces it to an intellectual exercise. I think that's, you know, and then people get let off the hook. Well, I've just changed my mm-hmm. about something. No, you've you spat in the face of the one who died for you on the cross. If you were, if you had any degree of commitment, but anyway, um, I think that my point is that it, that, uh, in this conversation I was having the other day was, you know, where churches go corporate, let's just call it corporate. In other words, there's a big package, a nice building, you know, a, a little, so many minutes timed out worship package, quote unquote worship, uh, you know, uh, a little motivational message, inspirational message, and then you all go home. Well, what's that? That's not kingdom life. That's not church. That's not koinonia. That's not biblical Christianity. And there's no power of the spirit. No wonder people walk away from that because you can get all of that. If you go to, you know, a bar or the rotary club or, you know, the soccer moms or hockey dads or whatever you want to go to, you can get you can get all of that there. Hockey dads. Maybe not all of it. Maybe not all of it. Most of it. Mo- Some of it, maybe. Maybe the sense of, of belonging and community. You're not going to get, you know, you're not going to sing worship songs or get Bible teaching at, at your Rotary Club. No, you're, no, I know. I'm pushing it to make a point that it can be reduced to going through the motions that doesn't really touch the heart or change the life. And then we shouldn't, then we're surprised when people leave because there's nothing to hold them. But if you've had a supernatural encounter with the living God and you've had doctrine taught to you, that's word and spirit. Now we're in a different department altogether. People don't walk away from that uh, unless usually in my experience, there is some massive area of sin in their life. They choose to walk in sin and and walk away from the Lord. Um, so that's why I feel that we need to conceptualize church as being the gateway to the supernatural, not in a weird way, but just in a natural way that gives us the equipment that we need to live this life for Christ. And that includes you know, the experiential reality of the Holy Spirit. I mean, we, we can feel his presence. And, and if people say, oh, that's experientialism. No, you know, well, you feel emotion at lots of things. When the queen died, well, I'm, you know, not an American. I'm a Canadian. I'm, I'm subject to the queen. You know, I cried because for a number of reasons, uh, it touched me deeply. And so why is it wrong when we cry in church, you know, but in lots of churches, people are taught to, by example anyway, to bottle up their emotions and it's all an intellectual exercise. Yeah. That's not enough. We need something that touches the whole person. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. Um, if, yeah, not to overstate the case, but if, um, if those who had crucified Christ were converted after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost required that kind of experience, then uh, surely we're okay with the fact that 
it, it is not enough to intellectualize somebody into the kingdom of God. Jesus did not intellectualize people into the kingdom of God. Um, the fact is he ministered to their whole lives and people came to him. And then there were those who turned away from him and were part of the crowd yelling, crucify him. And yet Peter stands up on Pentecost and says, you have you've killed him. And they say, well, what do we do? And he says, you need to repent and be baptized and, and uh, receive the Holy Spirit. So we see in Acts 8 and 10, and by the way, I, I heartily agree with everything that you're saying, um, 100%. I don't, I don't want anyone to mistake some of my uh, uh, pushback on anything as a disagreement. I'm just making sure that we're getting to the point as clearly as possible. Uh, but I absolutely agree that we need great teaching and we need tr true facilitation of people having powerful encounters with the Holy Spirit, which I want to touch on at the end of this. Coming back to eight, Acts 8 and 10. So we see, like you pointed out in Acts 2, there's repentance, there's water baptism, there's baptism with the Spirit in both Samaria and in Cornelius in different orders, but those three elements are there. Um, so we can't say necessarily that God can be put in a box, that God will operate according to our formula, but we can say that there's a pattern there when it comes to salvation. When we're facilitating people's salvation today, and I loved what you were saying about water baptism, um, and I, I think this way too, uh, when we're facilitating or, or leading people to Christ today, um, we, we should pursue that experience to be marked by those three elements again, by repentance of sin, by baptism in water, and baptism with the Holy Spirit. When I am water baptizing somebody, let's say, and either, you know, before or after they come out of the water, I'm laying hands on them and I'm praying for them to receive the Spirit. What what does that sound like? What does that experience look like? And what kind of evidence should I look for? Because the fact is, in Acts 2, 8, 10, and 19, in all four of those moments, there is speaking in tongues and prophesying. So help us think clearly about that. Well, I, I like I said, I think that um, the the Jews believed that the spirit of prophecy would be restored, which is why it was so mm -hmm. significant that Elizabeth and uh, Zechariah and Anna and Simeon um, and Mary were all prophesying. Nobody had prophesied for four hundred years, and right. when they started prophesying, we just read it, especially as charismatics and say, Oh, ho hum, just not obviously. Yeah. <laughs> great, great prophecies, but just that was earth shaking when those right. people were doing that, they must've been absolutely blowing the fuses of everybody around them because nothing like this had happened for 400 years. And so on Pentecost, the Jewish people would have understood this is the restoration of the Holy spirit. The Holy spirit of prophecy is what they termed the Holy spirit. They believed, Spirit had been withdrawn at the at the uh, the death of the final prophets of the Old Testament because of the sin of the nation, and that the Holy Spirit would be restored uh, when the Messiah came, and so that and would be accompanied by fire and light. That's what they believed, and so Jesus. They didn't receive him as the Messiah. He died deserted by most people, and yet Peter gets up, and thousands are converted. Is Peter more uh, spirit anointed than Jesus was? No. 
what happened was the Holy Spirit came in fire and light. This was a fulfillment of 400 years of prophecy. It was, there was a segue into it at the birth of Jesus when Elizabeth and Mary and all those others began to prophesy. There was a segue into it, but um, then nothing else happened until Pentecost. But when that happened in such a public and visible way, the, the Jewish people knew that that's why they accepted what, what Peter was preaching. He, this is it. He says, this is what Joel talked about. This is what you've been believing for 400 years. Here is the miraculous proof. The Holy Spirit has come in fire and light, and the spirit of prophecy is restored, and people are speaking out the great things of God uh, by the power of the Spirit. And that's why several thousand people came to Christ in that moment. And so that's our inheritance. And so when we see people come to Christ, we want that spirit of prophecy to come upon them. We want them to speak out the great things of God, which is why speaking in tongues, 1 Corinthians 14 defines as, as man speaking to God, as people speaking to God. It's not God speaking to us. That's the distinction between interpreted tongues and prophecy. If you have an interpretation, of, this is a kind of a sidelight, but if you have an, tongues and interpretation, the legitimate interpretation is in the form of an address of praise and prayer and, and glorification to God. It's not a prophecy. Prophecy is God speaking to us. Prophecy is, thus saith the Lord, you know, I'm saying this, that, and the next thing to you. Tongues is, Lord, you, the interpretation of tongues should come, Lord, you are great, you are mighty, you are amazing, you are wonderful. See, that's the difference between the two. And that's, but, but on, on the day of Pentecost, that prophetic spirit uh, fell upon those people, and they were speaking in tongues the praises and the great things of God, and um, and so it was the sign that the the age of the Messiah had come, and I feel that that's what we want when people come to Christ. When we lead people to Christ, we want somehow, Lord, please, we want some form of what happened at Pentecost to have to them. We want them to have their personal Pentecost, whatever it looks like. Don't put it into a narrow, uh, you know, it has to look exactly like this, but we want something to happen. We want something significant to happen. Something supernatural, something where people can say, my life is not the same as it was. It's not just an intellectual experience. It's not just that I pray to prayer. It's that the power and presence of God has come upon me. Uh, maybe they can't even articulate that uh, in the moment of their conversion. But as they reflect on it, we want to hear them saying, something happened to me that I've never experienced before, and it has changed my life. And there's a power within me to live for Christ. And in due course, uh, you know, we should teach people, well, you can hear from God. You can hear from God you know, God will speak to you. And you've got to teach people, obviously. But if you teach them that way, their antenna are up and things will begin to happen. You can go and pray for people and expect things to happen. You know, right from the minute that you're saved, you can expect that to happen. Amen. Yeah, I think it's easy to read the accounts and acts and to flatten them into uh, like really automated type experiences, you know, they, they each began, um, speaking in tongues and, and prophesying, um, 
and who knows exactly how that looked and what kind of um, pastoral involvement that required from the Apostle Paul. Um, we just don't know, but I, I totally agree with you in that the receiving of the Spirit, um, it, sh- it should come along with entering into a supernatural world. Um, I, and I do actually love the idea of all of the gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 being available to every believer. I, I would love that to be the reality, you know, that uh, we get a little bit of Romans 12, and uh, but everybody also gets a little bit of 1 Corinthians 12, you know, as, as well. Um, I'm not totally sure about it, uh, but um, I would I really like that to be the case. So, yeah. Um, but perhaps it is, you know, experientially, it's interesting to me. Uh, I, I don't meet too many Christian leaders in the charismatic world who don't speak in tongues. Um, so I like the way you kind of broke that down in regards to it being very common, uh, but not necessarily normative, uh, because it does seem common to me. Has, has that been your experience too? Yes. Um, I just, you know, as a Bible teacher, I've always been very particular about, about, yes. And as you should be, and you can't to I, anyway, you cut the cards. Uh, I've looked this way, that way, and the next way, and I cannot find a clear definitive proof that uh, every Christian needs to speak in tongues or else there's some kind of lack. And um, that is confirmed to me experientially when Mm -hmm. I do meet people who have sought the gift of tongues sometimes for years uh, and sometimes have been condemned as being unspiritual. There must be some sin in your life because you don't speak Mm -hmm. And I just think, well, God is sovereign, you know, and uh, but these people usually have a variety of other gifts of the spirit operating. So if I run across something like that, I'll say, well, God could still give you the ability to speak in tongues. But on the other hand, why don't you just put your prophesying to work and your healing to work, your discernment to work and your miracles to work and just get out and do all those things? Amen. What would you say, David? So whether or not it's somebody who's been saved for five years and it's it's a you know it's a post salvation experience, or it's someone you're praying for at their baptism, um, what does that prayer for a power encounter sound like? Well, I I would ju- it's just just what it sounds like. It's Father, I just I'm laying my hands and praying and asking that you would impart the mighty presence of your Holy Spirit to. Uh, you know, whoever is I'm praying for at that moment and, you know, try to have an attitude of faith while you're doing it and ask for the release of the power of the spirit for him to do anything and everything he wants to do through that person's life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's just the way I do it. There are people, I've got friends who have real gifts in praying for people in terms of tongues and Mm -hmm. they just have success. You know, it's just, you know, I mean, God just does it this way. Um, we, we, my wife and I have always been praying for people. And I'm not saying I haven't prayed for people who've spoken in tongues either, um, because I have. But uh, we have a great gift for praying for infertile couples and seeing God. Uh, we've had, I don't know how many babies born 
you know, over the years that way, but not everybody has that. So you, you find out what God has gifted you to do, and you just follow it. Would you call that a gift of faith, like you have faith for that outcome, or would you say it's that's a particular a, kind of miracle you've been graced well, to you work? Faith. It's, a, it, it's a form of healing in that case. Mm-hmm. It's a gift of healing, really. Um, but sometimes you need a gift of faith accompanied with your gift of healing. Faith is a supernatural impartation in the moment for something that otherwise you wouldn't have believed. That's what it is. It's like Peter with the beggar at the temple gate. He walked past the guy dozens of times, had no faith. But that day he had faith. And and he stepped out in the ministry of healing and it worked. So, I- When Jesus tells the, the disciples in... When Jesus tells the disciples that they will do... Uh, the same and greater works as he. Does he have in view there the more supernatural, no, powerful I don't, gifts? I don't think so, because who could do more supernatural works than Jesus did? I just mm-hmm. think that the greater works uh, in, in the empowering of the Spirit, the works the disciples do are going to bring, bring people to Christ for mm-hmm. centuries all over the world, and that's part of what the greater aspect is. It can't it's a breadth, not depth or, type thing. Because uh, nobody could do more supernatural works than Jesus did. I'm just trying to find a way into your view on uh, every believer being gifted with some, at least one of the First Corinthians 12 gifts. believe it. 1 Corinthians 12 says, To each of you has been given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It's as clear as the nose in your face that the normative plan of God. The plan of God is for every single believer to be operating in at least one of those nine manifestations of the Holy Spirit. And I don't think we should be surprised at that either. I, yeah, I agree. I, I wouldn't be surprised at it. Um, and I, if I were to judge it empirically, I would, I would agree. Because um, that, that, that seems to be what I observe in the body of Christ. Um, so yeah, I guess I'm just hung up on, uh, why does Paul omit some of those gifts in Romans 12? Well, because he's talking about different things. There's, there's different types of gift that he's talking about. Uh, like we, like we said, leadership is a totally different realm than praying for the sick. You know, you could have someone who has an extraordinary ministry of healing that has very little leadership gift at all. Mm-hmm. Gift You can't promote someone to leadership on the basis of a charismatic gifting. It's a terrible mistake. I agree. Yep. But you could promote someone to leadership even if they're not gifted in any of the ways that 1 Corinthians 12 outlines. Well, they I, I, I mean, there's been lots of people because because we grieve the spirit that haven't moved in the gifts that have been great leaders. But I think mm-hmm. we should be aiming for the biblical pattern, which if is our teaching was correct. Oh, there would be some supernatural element there. Yeah, and, yeah. and if we're a leader in the body of Christ. We we darn well should be operating supernaturally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it it does seem to be an acts. Those who led were were experiencing supernatural moves of God as well. Absolutely. Stephen uh, 
I'm assuming that Ananias had some kind of leadership in Damascus. Am I, would I be right about that? Uh, we, you know, to be honest, we don't know, but I think right. that story in Acts nine is as much about Ananias as it is, as it is about Saul. It's God can use mm-hmm. anyone, mm-hmm. you know, because if Ananias, you could argue Ananias had a critical role in, in Saul's total conversion experience. And it just goes to show you that an ordinary person who leads somebody to Christ, that person they lead to Christ, like the shoe salesman I always quote in Chicago, referred to in Chicago, who led D.L. Moody mm-hmm. to Christ. You know, mm-hmm. Who knows what the guy's name even is? And yet if he wasn't there, we wouldn't have had Moody and everything that came beyond Moody, which traces mm-hmm. directly down to Billy Graham. Mm-hmm. Um, so... In the economy of God, the first will be last, the last will be first. There'll be some people very prominent in the eternal kingdom that have never had their names written in the history book or were were never leaders of churches. Yeah. I love it. This is good. good. I'm sure we'll talk more about this, but I'm uh, I'm coming around to what you're saying. Um, So with Pentecost, we can say that it was the establishment of the new normal, for the church, when you come to Christ, you are baptized with the Holy Spirit. It it should be sought uh, at the moment of salvation because it is part of the salvific experience. And in some way, everybody does receive the Spirit when they come to Christ because you can't come to Christ apart from the activity of the Spirit leading you to Him. Uh, but we should seek for um, people to have a, an, an encounter with Him. Um, laying our hands on them, praying for them. And we see that in, uh, I guess, kind of, there's not one Pentecost, there's three, I suppose. There's there's Acts 2, 8, and 10 for the Jews, the Samaritans, and the Gentiles. And all of that is indicative of, here we are, we're in this brand new covenant, and uh, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of prophecy has come, the church has entered into a supernatural realm that is empowered by the Spirit, uh, who provides and inspires all of these gifts with a uh, a special emphasis on the supernatural, um, and that Christians should seek to walk in that kind of lifestyle, uh, because that is the power of our witness, not just to encourage and edify one another, but also to reach the world as well. Does that sound like a pretty good summary? Great summary. Wonderful. Thank you guys so much for tuning into the Vast Podcast. We love you, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this subject. Um, But thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you guys listening. If you wouldn't mind taking a moment to rate, like the podcast, does a big help for us. And uh, we'll see you all next week. Mm